Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a US biochemist who discovered a powerful technology with huge potential for use in medical and agricultural research. We both looked at it and said, holy smokes, this is a programmable enzyme that could be used for genome editing because you can use it to introduce breaks in DNA that will trigger DNA repair. That was Jennifer Doudna talking about the moment she realized the potential of CRISPR-Cas9 system to transform the world of gene editing. She spoke to my colleague Richard Waters at her offices in the University of Berkeley on a foggy day in California last year. You got a great view from your office. Isn't it lovely? I know. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. you can spend hours yeah. dreaming out the window. <laughs> yeah, how'd you get any work done? <laughs> Fortunately, it's foggy a lot. So I would say welcome, Jennifer Doudna, to Tectonic. But I'm sitting here in your office in Berkeley at the University of California. So I guess it's you that should be welcoming me today. I should be welcoming you to the foggy East Bay here and looking across at our view of San Francisco. It's a great place to think great thoughts. That's great. Well, the fog is coming in, so it's definitely a San Francisco summer day. Jennifer, it feels like gene editing, and in particular CRISPR and Cas9, the technology that you work on, has sprung out of nowhere in the last three or four years to become you know, one of those great promising technologies that we sometimes hear about, they seize our imagination. We all become excited. But as I say, it just seems to come from nowhere. You've been working towards this for many, many years. But tell us about how you first got involved in this. I mean, how did you come across this? Well, I think the story of CRISPR-Cas9 and genome editing is a great example of the serendipity of science. It's really the process of curiosity-driven research that led in unexpected directions. That's really how the CRISPR technology came about. It's a great story because it shows how people working in various parts of the world on niche areas of science, of biology, who were wanting to understand how bacteria fight viruses in their environments, how that line of research, which was initially conducted by literally a handful of labs worldwide, eventually led to this really transformative technology. So I think that in our own case, this was an example of doing work here at the University of California, Berkeley, aiming to figure out how particular kinds of proteins are used in bacteria to fight viral infection. And the interesting thing that caught our attention was the fact that these proteins were programmable. They could be directed to different viruses by changing a small molecule of RNA that the protein holds onto that provides the zip code, the address label for the protein, and that could be easily changed in cells. And so the question that we had here was figuring out how that works. And it was through that process of just very fundamental investigation, a wonderful international collaboration with Emmanuel Charpentier's lab, that we figured out how this works in bacteria. And once we had that understanding, it was immediately clear that this could be repurposed 
for a very different goal, which is namely to change the genomes in other kinds of cells. You were working for a long time in this field in RNA and looking at the ways it could be used. CRISPR itself was an idea that was discovered elsewhere by someone working out that, you know, there are these snippets of coding DNA that perhaps you could replace, take out. But for you then, the real trick was working out how to do this, how to engineer a protein that could go in do the editing and do any kind of replacement. I would actually say that our work really was almost a step before that. It was right, really right. The, the question of how do bacteria naturally use proteins that can right. be programmed to find and destroy viruses. So answering that question right. then led to the idea that, hey, these are actually incredibly interesting proteins and they can be used for a very different purpose and how yeah. one might was, do that. Was there for you one of those aha moments when you actually realized, yes, we could apply this to this purpose? There was a wonderful moment. Uh, there were probably a few, but you know, the one that I always think of when I'm asked that question is a wonderful day that I was sitting here right in this office where we are right now with Martin Janek, a former postdoctoral fellow of mine who was the person in our lab that was doing all of the experiments originally on this CRISPR-Cas9 system. And he had figured out how RNA molecules are providing the address labels for Cas9. And he was sketching an idea that illustrated his data right here on this whiteboard. And we both looked at it and said, holy smokes, this is a programmable enzyme that could be used for genome editing because you can use it to introduce breaks in DNA that will trigger DNA repair. Right. So it was literally the both of you were looking at that and thought, you know, we really could use it for that. Exactly. That must have been an incredible moment. It was you. really exciting. And how long was it from there to, obviously you filed a patent on this, how long was it for you to reach that stage? Well, so then uh, we published those research results in the summer of 2012, and I was astounded at how quickly after that various groups started to reuse it and show that it was a very nice tool for engineering everything from human cells to plants to zebrafish, you know, entire fish that could be modified using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So, you know, I think one of the themes really of CRISPR-Cas9 as a technology is the rapid pace at which it was adopted. I think yeah, that's yeah. surprising to many people. It, was, it caught on like wildfire, didn't it? After you published it, really, people saw the potential in it. And I think, you know, so people have asked, and, and I've thought about this a lot too, is like, why is that? Because as you know, there are many technologies that develop in a very different way, where you mm -hmm. have, you know, an initial discovery that's important, but it needs a lot of development to become something that really has a very broad impact. And why is this different? And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is that CRISPR-Cas9 is not the first or even the second or third genome editing technology, right? It's one of a, sort of a long series of ways that scientists have tried to engineer the code of life in cells. And the reason is that it's been appreciated for decades, I would argue, really since the discovery of the structure of DNA in the 1950s, that by altering the letters of the genetic code in cells, you could actually control the program that dictates everything that happens in cells and how life evolves ultimately, and also controlling genes that cause disease in humans, you know, things like that. And so the question was how to do this, and there were several important technologies that came along earlier than CRISPR-Cas9 that were good enough to show the power of doing this, 
but not easy enough to, you know, sort of be able to take over as a dominant technology. And this is where CRISPR-Cas9 comes in. Because it's a single protein that can be easily reprogrammed for different places in the genome where you want to introduce and edit, that just makes it a very simple way, a simple tool that scientists with effectively, you know, minimal training can deploy for all kinds of purposes. And that's really why it took Mm -hmm. off the way it did. Interesting. I mean, conceptually, obviously, it sounds easy, but clearly it isn't. But what still lies ahead for you to make this a practical technology? How easy is it actually to engineer the proteins that can do this kind of work? And uh, what do you still have to do to get to that stage? Well, you know, the amazing thing is that the technology itself is, I would say, already very robust and is now widely used in laboratories ranging from the sort of highest level international experts in biology and clinical medicine all the way to middle school science classes where teachers are using CRISPR-Cas9 to teach their kids about genetics in different systems. So it's amazing, right? It really is a tool that has that kind of breadth. So in that sense, as a tool, it really is simple and easy to get a hold of and to get working for different kinds of research uses. But I think maybe what you're asking is, how do we get from where we are today with this tool that I think we all agree is very powerful technology? How do we get from there to being at a point where we cure genetic diseases or where this becomes a standard of care for certain kinds of human diseases or where it becomes a technology that's so widely used and accepted that many of the food items that we purchase at the supermarket are edited using CRISPR-Cas9, something like that. And I think that there's a couple of things to think about. One is that I think there's still a lot of work that's being done on the research side to understand what effects gene editing have in cells. So when we make changes to the genome, how accurate are those changes? Are we introducing changes at other places in the genome. And and even if we get changes to a desired gene over the long term, what effects do those have on organisms, right? All those sorts of questions that really are more at the research level. And then on the technology side, you know, the delivery challenge is a big one. I think, you know, figuring out how to get the gene editing molecules into cells and tissues, whether it's into a plant or whether it's into a person. The challenge there is still very much something that labs are grappling with. When we look at the time frame it takes to prove a technology like this, to prove it's safe and to bring it in, inevitably you think about things like gene therapy, you know, which was the wonder technology of, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. We are finally seeing one or two approvals now of cancer treatments. So it's taken a very long time. Would you expect to see the same kind of progress on CRISPR-Cas9? I do. I guess one of the things that's amazing to me is that we already have clinical trials that are ongoing for CRISPR-Cas9 for several different applications, primarily for cancer treatments that would involve editing the immune cells that attack cancer. But there will be clinical trials for other indications such as sickle cell disease, which has a well-known single genetic cause, and probably other diseases not too wow. far behind that. So, so it's, wow. it's moving very fast. So it could well move much faster than gene therapy. Yeah. And we're talking about conditions that, you know, if there was a treatment, would have a very important impact on people affected. And so there's obviously a huge attention to this at the moment. But as you said earlier on, you know, it's a technology that can be applied very widely it may have an impact on agriculture, 
on organ replacement, all kinds of things. So are there any particular technologies that might come first because they're safer or because they don't need to be tested so much? I think already we're seeing applications in agriculture broadly defined. So they're uh, not only in plants, but also in animals that are important agriculturally. So being able to make hornless cattle, for example, you know, which turns out to be something very important in the dairy industry. Is that actually happening? That's actually happening, believe it or not. Yeah, it's actually happening where you can do this genetically so that cattle don't have to be physically dehorned, but this can actually be done at the level of their genes. And I think that increasingly we're going to see products coming to market in food crops that will have edits made by CRISPR-Cas9. And as you probably know, that is raising the whole question of how we regulate those kinds of plant products and, you know, different countries have different approaches to this. But I think it's actually an issue that's coming up increasingly because of the pace of these advances. I mean, inevitably, everything you're talking about here raises different ethical questions. And I'm sure everybody listening to this is the first thing they're going to be thinking is, you know, what are the ethics of tampering with an animal's DNA, let alone a human's? You know, hornless cattle sound great, but What about future generations of cattle? So let's start with the simple stuff, first of all. Where do you think the limits are or the lines are in terms of how this technology should be applied in the animal world? Well, I think, you know, the opportunities to use genome editing to make changes that will protect the health of animals and perhaps avoid the need to use antibiotics, or at least not as much Mm -hmm. as we currently do, I mean, certainly the dehorning process for cattle, I've not seen it done. I've seen videos of it. It looks terrible for cattle if you have to do this physically. So I think that would be something that people would agree is a better thing to do at the level of genes. So I think we're going to see really interesting opportunities to use genome editing in ways that will protect animal health and potentially make the kinds of farming techniques that are underway right now more humane. So I'd like to see that done. It's always a question of the scale of use. How do you test the safety of these kinds of applications? And then, of course, who regulates it? When it comes to food, what have you learned from the debate about GMO, where potentially something very beneficial to people has been rejected in many parts of the world? Is there a lesson in there for your technology? Well, you know, I live in a city here in the U.S., Berkeley, California, where there are people who say they don't want DNA in their food. So (laughs) Uh, some people I know and love might say that. So, you know, it's been a very interesting experience for me to become more educated about the whole GMO debate. And one of the things that I think is important to appreciate is that I would say everything we eat is GMO, effectively. And why do I say that? Well, it's because, you know, human beings have been altering the uh, plants they grow for food crops for millennia. And this has been done traditionally by plant breeding. And in more recent decades, it's been done by plant breeders actually using either chemicals or radiation to introduce changes to DNA in plants that allow them to select traits that are desired. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Of course, you bring along many other changes at the same time. You don't know where those are. So what I think is important for people to appreciate is that what the CRISPR-Cas9 technology brings to the table is a tool that's precise. It allows one change to be made to a genome in principle. You can make a single alteration and not change anything else about the DNA. So it allows a much more accurate approach to the kinds of plant breeding questions and challenges that breeders have faced in the past without this tool. But there have been many strong arguments for GMO and that hasn't stopped the debate from swinging wildly to where it's got. So it's not about the science, it's about the politics and the perception. It is. Yeah, that's right. Being a scientist and an educator, I sort of feel like we always have to go back to the facts. But you're right, politics come into play here. I think labels come into play. I would like to see the whole GMO label pushed aside. I think it's not useful at this point. We should really come up with other ways of describing what we're doing in agriculture. So how do you prevent a similar fate for CRISPR-Cas9? For instance, you're talking to me, you're obviously talking a lot publicly now because you want to enhance understanding of the technology. Are you spending much time with policymakers in Washington, with politicians? Well, I, maybe I need to do more of that. I've done some of it. One of the things that I've been doing actually is working more with the companies, you know, working in the agricultural space. And I think many of them appreciate that a big issue with the whole GMO debate was actually the role of companies in not being transparent about what they were doing, not maybe being honest about products that were being rolled out and the purpose of those products. So I tend to be an optimist, but I I hope that companies have learned from that experience and recognize that it's really, really important that they manage their work in the public domain uh, appropriately, that they be clear about what it is they're doing and what the purpose of products are. So that's one way that I'm trying to work on this. And another is we've started being involved in a meeting that's called CRISPRCon. This has been a way to bring together people that are working in academia, in companies, in foundations, farmers, you know, anybody that has an interest, especially in the agricultural applications of genome editing, to get together and debate and discuss, you know, where the science is today, what's fact, what's fiction, what's mm-hmm. hype. And what are the real needs and challenges that are facing people that are working in the agricultural sphere? And how do we address those challenges in a way that's ethical and safe? Are there any other technologies you've looked at in other fields that have helped you understand how to address this publicly? I mean, inevitably, I think about AI at the moment. Like gene editing, it sounds like one of those amazing ideas that because it does have such big impact long term, it's so easy to drag a lot of that debate forward and talk now as though it already was creating designer babies or whatever it is. What do you learn from that? Right. So I think the AI is a great sort of parallel to what's happening in the biological sphere right now. I have to admit to you that I don't understand enough in detail about AI to know whether, you know, is Elon Musk right or is Mark Zuckerberg right? I'm not sure. Is it something we really need to be, uh, you know, worried about in the near term or is it more of a long-term risk that we need to manage uh, over time? You know, with genome editing, I guess the parallel that I think is closest perhaps in biology is really the debate that happened 
in the 1970s over molecular cloning. And this was a debate that came about when scientists were first able to make copies of pieces of DNA in bacteria. And they were doing it in the kinds of bacteria that grow in the human gut. And so the question arose, would this be safe? Would it be risky to have engineered bacteria that were able to make potentially dangerous proteins that could potentially get into the environment or even get into human bodies and affect our health in ways that might be very hard to control or even to predict. And so this led to a moratorium on molecular cloning that was called for by scientists who came together to have a meeting and, and discuss this and decided that you know it would need to be vetted very, very carefully. And I think that set an interesting precedent for how we manage new technologies like genome editing and certainly has influenced my thinking about how to bring together the scientific community and encourage responsible use and development of this technology in conjunction with people who are outside of science but have important views to bring yeah. to the table. So do you think that there are some hard lines that need to be drawn about the use of this, and much as you're talking about in cloning? So, for instance, you know, people talk about whether it's right to affect the germline, you know, things that you pass down to other generations, or whether we should only apply this to technologies that affect the individual. You know, some people say that is a hard line, that we simply shouldn't be rewriting the rules of the future only for now. I mean, is that a line that you recognize? I guess my views on human germline editing have been shifting a bit. You have to appreciate I'm a chemist originally and a biochemist, so I come from a scientific line of work that is very fundamental and wasn't working in any way connected to human embryos or human development. But through genome editing, I've become much more aware of the state of that field, of sort of understanding the fundamentals of human development. And I've come to appreciate that there are some really interesting and important questions about the very early steps in human development that can only be asked now that we have a genome editing technology that would work in those cells. So I think that, you know, work that's being done in research laboratories, some of it in the UK by Kathy Nyakon, and there's other groups that are working in this area as well, I think could be very important for giving insights into that very fundamental early biology of human life. But beyond that, I personally feel that there's not a strong argument to be made today, at least, for using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology in embryos that would be implanted for the purpose of making babies. Why not? Well, because I think two things. One is that for genetic diseases that we know about, in many cases, if couples know that they're at risk for those diseases, they can already screen for those traits in embryos that are created in in vitro fertilization clinics. So you could identify embryos that didn't have a deleterious trait that way avoiding risks that would come about if you tried to correct them using uh, gene editing. Now, could that change in the future as the technology advances and becomes more efficient and safer, et cetera? Sure, but I'm just saying I think for now that's what I see. And I think the other big risk is that, you know, in most cases we don't actually know the genetics that underlie human traits. So if a couple were to go to an in vitro fertilization clinic that was offering a, a menu of options for uh, gene editing their children, I would argue that in most cases, the kinds of traits parents might be interested in, I want kids that are taller, smarter, more muscly, or whatever, you know, those are going to be very difficult to engineer right now, because we just don't know all of the genes involved. And I think there'd be a lot more risk than benefit.
benefit. Nevertheless, obviously, it's a debate that we're having now and needs to be had now. We are. And I think that the truth is that this is coming. There's no doubt, right? Is it coming tomorrow or next year? Certainly not. But is it coming in the future? It is at some point. I think it will because I think the temptation to use genome editing to improve our kids or to do things that we think are going to make people's lives better at the level of their germline is going to be a very strong temptation. Well, it would almost be irresponsible not to use a technology like that. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. I mean, you know, imagine you could remove the gene that leads to Huntington's disease from the human population. Who could argue this wouldn't be a good thing, right? So, you know, I think there's things like that that make you think, yeah, at some point, this may be something that we would want to use in that way. But I think we're not there now. So when you say your own ideas have evolved or developed, in which direction are they leading? Well, I think that over time, I'm becoming more comfortable with the idea of using this technology in the human germline. I think that, you know, when I first started to think about it, my kind of knee-jerk reaction was, we shouldn't go there at all, yeah. right? But then yeah. as I learned from my colleagues and scientists that work in these areas that, you know, there's actually some very fundamental biology that we're not going to discover through any other way, that started to make sense that maybe you'd want to do research in very, very early embryos that were not intended for implantation to discover fundamental biology. And as you just indicated, you know, there may come a time when we say, gee, it would actually be unethical not to use this for certain kinds of diseases where you could actually eliminate a disease-causing gene from a family, let's say. That might be a very compelling case for that. So to follow that thought, who should be looking at this right now? Which regulators should be involved? And are they interested? Are they paying attention? Well, it's an interesting question. Here in the United States, we're in an interesting circumstance where we're not allowed to use federal tax money for research on human embryos of any kind, not just genome editing, but of any kind. And our Food and Drug Administration is not allowed to even review human germline editing applications right now. That's, that's how it works. Now, you may be aware that there actually has been research using CRISPR-Cas9 in human embryos that's been published from a lab here in the U.S., and that's because they used non-federal funding. So if a scientist or a group can get funding from another source, then it's okay right now here in the U.S. So it's sort of an interesting situation. In other countries, it works a bit differently. So I think it's an interesting thing to note that in the U.K., I think the whole culture, and this is reflected in the regulatory framework, is more accepting. And then when we look across other countries, other jurisdictions, you know, we see definitely interesting cultural differences in how people view this kind of use of the technology. And it's a fascinating time because, as you know, business, that all goes on globally. So, you know, scientists and business partners are working together all the time, and we have to manage these different points of view. So inevitably, there won't be a coherent global approach or even a coherent national approach, to take your example of federal funding. And that's a reality that isn't going to change. Probably it won't change, yeah. So I think we just have to manage that. We have to deal with that. And meantime, as you say, the corporate world is moving ahead at full steam. Yeah, of course. And you're involved yourself in a number of companies that have been set up, including one that's gone public at a very early stage. So you clearly feel confident this is going to arrive very soon. What are the things that you think, through your personal involvement in the corporate side, you think are going to happen? What are the potentials here? Well, let's see. So today, you know, there are companies that have gone public that are focused on using CRISPR-Cas9 for gene editing in human therapeutics. And those companies are all 
working away with the idea that uh, you could use genome editing eventually to cure initially perhaps rare diseases, but eventually much more common diseases that this could actually become a, a standard kind of treatment. But as you know, you know, therapeutics take a very long time to develop. Typically, you have to go through clinical trials that take years to complete. So those are in the pipeline, but certainly not anything that will happen immediately. Then there are companies that are working in the agricultural sector. And for me, honestly, it's a little bit unclear right now what's going to happen there. I think, you know, some of the big agricultural companies are focused on the major crops and perhaps using gene editing to make alterations to those crops that will be advantageous in different markets. But at the same time, there are some a number of smaller uh, startup companies that are working in agriculture that are focused on other kinds of plants, plants that people might want to grow in their backyard gardens. Could you make, uh, you know, genome-edited roses that would have interesting properties, you know, things like that. So it's not clear to me what the relative pace of those kinds of applications will be. And then there are some other applications that are probably worth mentioning. So one is diagnostics. I think, you know, this is a more recent development in the CRISPR world where it's been clear that some of the CRISPR-Cas enzymes are useful not only for genome editing, but actually for, for DNA and RNA detection. So we can use them to give a very fast uh, readout for the presence of a virus in a sample, for example. And by not actually trying to change the genome, presumably that might be a technology that comes quicker because it's safer. Quicker and, and also potentially faster for regulatory approval. So I think that's an interesting one to watch. There's been a patent dispute going on for some time now involving your work and others in this field. As you said, after you published your research in 2012, it led to this incredible explosion of interest and another work in the field. And now a dispute between the University of California here and the Broad Institute and MIT and the work that they've done. Is this going to slow down the rollout of CRISPR work? Because we've seen other fields, you know, get tangled up in IP rights. Are we going to see this happen now? Boy, I hope not. Uh (laughs) You know, there's no question that that dispute will go on for a while. But I think what's interesting to me is that, so far at least, it hasn't really had an effect on the pace of, certainly not on academic work in this field, and I would argue also not in the commercial space, because investors recognize that, you know, this is a very fast-moving technology. It's almost riskier to not get involved with it if you've got a great idea than to just jump in and get going and hope that by the time products are coming to market, the patent matters will have been sorted out to the point that people know what they need to do to get freedom to operate. All right. Well, Jennifer Dowden, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening. Next week, we hear from a business executive who is using the power of AI and robotics to transform e-commerce. We welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.